court, la cour. morning, please be seated. In the case of Earthco Soil Mixtures Inc. against Pine Valley Enterprises Inc. for the appellant Earthco Soil Mixtures Inc. Mark Clayman and Ian Clayman. For the respondent Pine Valley Enterprises Inc. Vito S. Calisi and Dylan A.S. Ball. For the intervener, Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Jeremy Opalski, and Lauren Nickerson. Mr. Clayman. Chief Justice, Justices, I uh, will be addressing the issue of whether liability is excluded under the Sale of Goods Act and the standard of review that is issue number two in our factum and my associate Ian Clayman will be addressing the issue relating to the sale by description. If I may, as you are no doubt aware the law is an evolving concept. Sattva, Turkhan, the hearsay rules are examples of a more principled and rational approach to particularly the interpretation of contracts. The intervener in my respectful submission submits that commercial certainty is a law, it, it should be uh, a goal and it's a laudable goal. But there's a more fundamental principle in my respectful submission and, and my respectful submission justice is a more laudable goal and one that courts should aspire to in each occasion. And in my submission, determining the party's intentions serves justice. How else can the justice be served without determining the party's intentions to the contract? Mr. Clement, do you make a distinction between the interpretation of the contract and the interpretation of the specific provisions of the Sales of Goods Act? In my respectful sense. In terms of standard of review. I, I'm sorry I missed that. I said do you make a distinction between interpreting a contract and interpreting provisions of the Sale of Goods Act in terms of the standard of review? I think they're inter, in my submission, they're interrelated in the sense that um, when a court's interpreting a contract, certainly it has to give effect to the terms of the Sale of Goods Act, but by the same token, um, in doing so, it has to give effect to the party's intentions as to what they intended. So the meaning of the Act changes depending on the terms of the contract. I would say that stands the law right on its head. I, I, would submit it, I would submit respectfully that it doesn't change the law or turn the law on its head. It, it's incorporated into the analysis as to what the party's intentions were. So it's not turning the sale of goods act on its head or ignoring it, but the act, the words of the act. But is not the meaning of the act to be ascertained, not by the intention of individual parties, but by the intention of the legislature that enacted it, which is a matter which is fixed at the time of enactment. And I would suggest that if you look at Section 53 of the Sale of Goods Act, it provides that liability, a party may, the parties may exclude liability by express agreement. Those are the operative words of Section 53. 
it's not by express language, but by express agreement, which means that the courts, by necessity, has to look at what the agreement was between the parties. But you would agree, Mr. Kleiman, I, I take it you would agree that uh, the whether Hunter Engineering is still the governing precedent or whether it needs to be modernized, that in light of Satfa and Cornerbrook and Leadcore and the, the sort of the seismic shift in uh, contract interpretation law affected by the court um, is an issue, is an extricable question of law. And but, and but that is separate from the interpretation of the agreement, which is entitled to deference. So the, the role of the legal principles that apply in, define, in, in demarcating what, what are the factors that go into an express agreement as referred to in, in uh, Section 53 may well be a matter of, um, of uh, correctness, it seems to me. I was going to get to that in the second oh. part of my submissions. I'm not trying to ignore you, but I would suggest to the contrary because uh, in reality, in interpreting what, if, you, if the operative words of the section are express agreement, the court by necessity has to examine the factual matrix, the context, as Safa tells us to do. And that if brings us back to, uh, if, the, if the court has to de determine that, even in the context of Section 53, then, it's, it, then in my respectful submission, it's a deference issue, not a correctness issue. I, I think we may be speaking at cross purposes here, that this agreement might not be earth-shaking, I hesitate to use that word in this case, but, but uh, I, you, 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 would, you wouldn't disagree that what the statute means when it says, even when it says, ex what is an express agreement? That's, a, that's, that's the statute, that's, that's the legislature speaking. So that's, that's a question of statutory interpretation. Whereas what the content of that agreement is, there, there, you're right, there we're, we're into the interpretation of an agreement and it's a whole different process. I think the, all the questions from the bench are suggesting is that we have a big stake, the province of Ontario has a big stake in keeping those two questions distinct. I think that's the only point here. Would you disagree with that? No, in principle I don't disagree with that, but. But having said that, um, I would suggest that if you look at what the legislature said by virtue of the words express agreement, for example, uh, unlike Hunter and some of the other cases that my friend relies upon, they, they don't say um, that to oust liability you need the words, you need, I'll call it the magic words, to oust it by virtue of statutory liability, or you don't need to say we're ousting, you're only ex excluding liability by using words like we're ousting liability under the Sale of Goods Act. It's very general and broad, which allows in my, permits in my submission, the, the parties to um, determine what they intended to do when they contracted. For example, the scheme of the Sale of Goods Act in my respectful submission is a, is a little bit of a balancing act in the sense that on the one hand, it's designed to protect purchasers, but on the other hand, it's also allowing parties to freely contract uh, and determine their respective rights and how they, want to how they want to allocate their rights and their obligations. That's what Section 53 does. And so in my respectful submission, it's not simply a matter of statutory interpretation. Um, and, and accepting that, but m moving on, wouldn't you say, though, it is an extricable error of law 
if the Court of Appeal is insisting on an express, direct, and clear um, ousting of statutory conditions as opposed to uh, following um, an express agreement interpretation that respects things like Sattva, Cornerbrook, etc. And my submission would be that, respectfully, the Court of Appeal in my submission erred because what they said was not a strict interpretation of the section, but if you look at, for example, their decision, and this is found at page, paragraph 67 of their decision, it's at tab three of the record, page 61, at paragraph 67. In the, it's in the record. I apologize. Okay, it's not okay. Yeah, I apologize. If I may, if it says, rather, the law requires the condition be considered included in the party's agreement unless by their express language. That's in my respectful submission where the Court of Appeal aired. It didn't provide for an express agreement by but express language. And so it didn't properly interpret in my submission the, the section of the Sale of Goods Act. Of law. That interpretation of the Court of Appeal of the, the expression express agreement, when they said it requires express language, do you, do you acknowledge that it is a question of law which is reviewable under the standard of correctness? It, I, I would suggest that it was an error of law on their part to use the word the express, to use express language rather than express agreement. Uh, agreement. Having said that, um, in my submission, they erred in not giving deference to the trial judge who made very clear and specific findings of fact that in his view, based on all the evidence that he heard, that the parties clearly understood what was going on. Uh, they clearly knew what the risks that were being assessed and, and transferred and they understood those risks. Unfortunately, the Pine Valley made a business decision because it was delayed uh, through its own work when the city was gonna charge them uh, liquidated damages for the delay, but the trial judge made very clear findings on the evidence. He, if you look at his analysis, he, he clearly says and he acknowledges, and if I may, He acknowledges that as a matter of law, it requires a strict construction. He acknowledged and, adapt and adapted the position of Pine Valley that you need a clear and unambiguous language. He, um, and whether that's true or not is a different issue. I'm not necessarily agreeing, but that he adopted their position. He said the real issue is determining the intention of the parties and whether the clause was suitably drafted to exclude liability. And he found that the clause, the two clauses in issue, clauses six and seven, were clear and unambiguous. He made a factual finding based on the evidence that he heard, based upon the intention of the parties, based upon the Turcon analysis that led him to conclude that on all that evidence, it was, there was a, a the clause was clearly okay, drafted. Okay, well now, let's, let me put to you a hypothetical to try to bring out the point that several of my colleagues and I have been making. If the uh, precedents of various courts had said 
in order to exclude liability, you must refer to the relevant provision of the Sale of Goods Act by its section number. If it was that screwed down that tightly, otherwise the exclusionary clause is ineffective. Is that not a question of law as to whether that is a proper interpretation of uh, Section 53 express agreement? Because if it was, isn't that what Hunter and engineering is about? How tightly must the uh, exclusionary clause be tied to the relevant provision of the Sale of Goods Act. And you're saying, you don't even have to look at the Sale of Goods Act. But you see, that's not what Hunter Engineering says. And you're just blowing past that as if it doesn't exist. And, and I don't understand how you can do that. Uh, respectfully, I'm not blowing past the Sale of Goods Act. I'm asking, I'm, I'm suggesting that the trial judge got it right in, in the analysis in the sense that what he was saying was in order to determine uh, whether the liability was excluded in these circumstances, I have to look at the intention of the parties, the agreement, and determine whether under those circumstances it met, it fit within the definition, or it fit within section 53 which said was there, did the parties by express agreement clearly intend to oust liability. So respectfully, I'm not trying to ignore it. I'm just going I th I back to you, what I think the point may be that you're maybe creating a problem that you need not create for yourself. What's peculiar about this statute as against other statutes, say the Beekeepers Act, where interpreting the Beekeepers Act is a question of law, right? You've got, that's no doubt. Here we're dealing with a statute that by its design interfaces with parties' intention, with contracts. It's, that's the design. And indeed, the Sale of Goods Act is a default regime in many respects. I'm sure your, your colleague will, when he's talking about Section 14 and the implied condition, will say that, you know, the parties can oust the rules, they can... But that does... I think the point that's being made here is simply with all the importance that we give to parties' intention, when we're talking about when the legislature decides to presume intention or decide how intention should be imputed to the parties or not, those are questions, and it's done in the statute, and the way in which it's done in the statute, that's a question of law. It doesn't deflect from your argument that when you get to the nitty-gritty of sec clauses six and seven of this agreement, we're going to have to just try and s s figure out what they mean as against Section 53. Um, uh, but, but I think that's this idea that this particular statute works with presumed intention and that that somehow sometimes muddies the water in the analysis, uh, and it need not. And in my submission, I, I don't disagree that there's, there, one could clearly argue there's a presumed intention. However, um, that, pres that presumption can be rebutted and that's, that's what the, a trial judge does when he is examining, when he or she is examining the, the, the party's intentions. Um, that's what gives them the right to do that. Mr. Clement, um, in section 13 of the Sale of Goods Act, there is a specific reference to 
in a contract of sale unless the circumstances of the contract are such as to show a different intention. So section 13 refers to circumstances of the contract uh, that show a different intention, but in section 53 we don't uh, find such a, a wording. Does it have any impact in our analysis about the interpretation of the relevant provisions here? In my respectful submission, no, you, you, you still have to be guided by the section which is express intention. Whether there's a heavier onus on the party seeking to oust liability by virtue of the difference between section 13 and section 53, that may be something for a trial judge to determine or the court to determine. But it still doesn't deflect from my submission that the court's got to determine what the express agreement was, whether it's oral or written, uh, by virtue of what they intended. So I have another question for you, unrelated to uh, just I, I asked you. <laughs> so here the trial judge uh, decided, found that uh, it was a sale by description, and uh, so, but are you, you are challenging that? Yes, my associate will it deal is with that a, issue. Okay, so I'm going to wait for. <laughs> I'm sure you can wait with bated breath. You're aware that I'm going to ask you, how can you challenge that? <laughs> I think what my client is saying is that she's going to lay in wait for your friends. <laughs> Mr. Kleinman, you've been very specific and helpfully so in identifying what you say is the error in the Court of Appeal in paragraph 67, just as Zarnett refers to express language, and you say uh, the express agreement is broader than the express language. That's the message of the uh, Satfa and its progeny that uh, one can look to the, the surrounding circumstances, the course of conduct, etc which incidentally section 53 is, ex itself acknowledges. Um, but in respect of Justice Nakutsuru's uh, judgment, perhaps it could be said, um, consistent with your position, that the um, appeal should be allowed, that he really didn't, he distinguished the cases Halliburton and IPEX and the other cases he cited, uh, which drew on Hunter Engineering in a very narrow way really um, saying, uh, I'm gonna decide these cases on, uh, on their own facts, rather than on the basis of a broader principle, which is that um, what you've identified in is the error in the Court of Appeal. Correct. So I'm, I'm, it seems to me that those two propositions are consistent, that there is a, an, an analytical error, one could say, on your position in Justice Nakatsuru's approach to distinguishing the authorities, because it's a broader basis to deal with them, um, which he doesn't do in his reasons. No, fair enough, and respectfully, uh, to res in respect to the Justice Nakatsura, his, his analysis of the distinguishing features between uh, Hunter and IPEX and the other cases was not really brought out in a more fulsome way. Um, but he said what he said, and we're, we're unfortunately stuck with what he said. <laughs> Um, let's assume that uh, the wording of the clauses in question here, uh, six and seven, um, uh, respects the express language uh, uh, expression in section 53. Let's assume that for the time being. Given the fact that those clauses refer to quality and that the trial judge said that uh, the sale by description, it goes to identity, how can you say that the implied condition in section 14, which the trial judge decided goes to identity, has been uh, 
the liability has been excluded because the clause, if it satisfies the requirement of express language, is talking about quality only. Right. And I, to, to answer that question, we sort of have to go back to the issue, the factual matrix of the case, which was Pine Valley contracted for a certain type of earth, earth that had to be batched and mixed, and, and, and that wasn't done. Um, but the trial judge was very clear about the fact that um, the parties freely understood and understood what they were getting and, and what they had contracted for. And yes, he used the word quality. Um, the parties used the word quality. Everybody used the word quality. But the first judge said that section 14 goes to identity, not to quality. I agree. Um, and that may be, have been an error in his, in his part in using those words as opposed to broadening the approach and not just limiting it to quality. Um, in my, I can't read his mind, but in my submission, the analysis really went to what, did they, what were they contracting for and what did they understood they were getting. And if you, if you look at the decision, he was very clear about uh, the fact that, um, and bear with me. Because does quality not go to the testing? The quality goes to not not alone. No, and my, my associate will make that submission because it goes to the right to inspect, and that's one of the arguments that's being made. But but uh, the the quality goes to sorry the testing goes to the issue of whether the earth is is meets the specifications that were contracted for. And in other words, it fit, with, it fit within that range that was required, presumably by the city and passed on through the city to my client. And the trial judge said that that, the composition of the soil, it, that it is identity. And he said Pine Valley did not get what they bargained for. And that's why we suggest here that the trial judge made an error in making that determination. Presumably a palpable and overriding error. Yes. But, but do you have to argue that? I mean, when I look at what you're saying about Section 53 and the focus on what an express agreement is, the allocation of risk, the full understanding of what's going on, is it possible that people contracting with each other will use the term quality in a different way and that the law and Ashington Piggeries might not have been foremost in these parties' minds, in terms of the, the legal distinction between identity and quality? A thousand percent. And part my submission to you is this, and it was been made in the fact that when we're dealing with the Sale of Goods Act, we're not just dealing with sophisticated parties and sophisticated contracts like in Hunter or other cases like that. We're dealing with cases that go through the whole continuum of, of, of contracts down to somebody who sells a bicycle in a small bicycle shop on a used bike on an as-is, where-is basis, and is that sufficient enough? The average, one could argue that the average Canadian businessman doesn't know the difference between quality or description or the fact that even Section 53 of the Sale of Goods Act applies. Is it, fair, any to say, application. Is it fair to say then, just so I can put it in terms that I would understand, is it fair to say that some matters of quality are intrinsic to the description? I would agree with that. And so the, the problem is that when you're, when you're looking at Section 53, you have to look at it in the continuum of not just 
the upper echelon of high-end cases or high-end contracts with sophisticated parties who have lawyers drafting it, but you have to look at what the average Canadian businessman might know or might not know. Um, and I would submit uh, that the likelihood is most don't know that. And, and so that's why it's more important, and, and that's why in my respectful submission, justice demands that we look at the party's intention rather should, than I guess they should go words. and talk to their lawyer before they sign the contract. Well, um, <laughs> that would be nice, but the reason why they, the reason why we exist is because they don't. And this is why we don't have to contemplate certainty and predictability. But there's also certainty in, in, in allowing the courts to determine the party's intentions. And it serves, as I said, a more laudable goal to make sure that the party's intentions are met rather than requiring magic words to be inserted in every contract as a way of excluding liability. Um, if, I, if I may, I'd like to move on to the, which is sort of ingrained in what I've been dealing with, but the standard of review. And I will be very brief, or hopefully brief. And I've alluded to this earlier. If the court's role in interpreting a contract, even in the context of Section 53, or the Sale of Goods Act, is to determine the party's intention, by necessity, it has to understand um, the factual analysis and the matrix. That's what Satva tells us to do. And that was engaged in by the trial judge in my respectful submission correctly. And so the issue, um, and the, therefore the issue of determining whether Section 53 by express agreement um, excluded, uh, the, uh, the work, excluded liability by necessity has to be a deference standard because otherwise you can't understand what the parties agreed to um, and what they intended um, and whether they intended to exclude liability by virtue of section 53 or otherwise. If you had those magic words that my friend and the intervener seeks to uh, uh, ask the court to do, then it is a correctness standard. But in my submission it can't be because it, sh and it shouldn't be for, by virtue of my submissions because justice is a more overriding goal. And the Court of Appeal in my submission um, and their, with their second error is by using... But, but can't we say it's an extricable error of law how the Court of Appeal approached uh, express agreement, but it's a palpable and overriding error if we want it to, uh, is the standard, if we want it to touch the trial judge's determination about what these parties actually intended. But in my submission, the Court of Appeal found that the correctness standard was the appropriate standard, and, and that, that is part of the appeal. So we say it always should have been a deference standard. And so, in my, so for example, and, and where I say the Court of Appeal erred in their analysis, in their, the second point, is that when they emphasize, for example, the word quality, as Justice Cote did, they swung the, they correctly noted that, for example, that the that a factual matrix in the SATFA analysis can't, be over, can't overwhelm the words of the contract. And that's correct, but by the same token, um, you can't ignore the intention of the parties and simply look at the words and say, this is what it says and therefore that's what I'm finding. Um, in, in the Rosenberg decision, uh, the court cited uh, a case, uh, not a case, but an author's uh, 
quote, uh, his name was Jeff Hall, it's at paragraph 124 of the Rosenberg decision. And it's a very short uh, um, quote. It says, an ideal interpretation is one that accounts for both the words used and the context. And in my submission, the Court of Appeal didn't take into account the words used, so they swung the pendulum one way and they didn't achieve that balance that they should have in interpreting the contract. We look specifically, I'd like you to see if you can identify very specifically on this point, the error that the Court of Appeal made. So, so I'm in the, the reasons of the Court of Appeal. It's paragraphs uh, 61, 62, 63. This is where Justice Sarnett says that the express language in the, in the uh, exclusionary clauses cannot be expanded by recourse to the factual matrix. The interpretation of a written uh, contractual provision must be grounded in the text, read in the entire context. He cites sattva as authority for that, so he's not unmindful of precedent here. And he continues on at 63, the factual matrix cannot change, I, I think this is an allusion probably to clause 7, re change responsible for the quality in the exculpatory clauses to responsible for the identity, let alone add words to those clauses that were not used, such as under any condition expressed or implied, statutory or otherwise. This is, this is, this, what is, what's the nature of the mistake he's made here? If, you see, if it's a mistake at all. I would suggest that um, the analysis ignored the factual findings made by the trial judge um, he, in my submission, correctly applied the law, as I've indicated his analysis in, uh, in his analysis, and simply by focusing on the word quality um, doesn't necessarily, in my submission, um, answer the question simply because they use the word quality, because as, for example, was discussed earlier, many Canadians won't know the difference between quality or description okay. or quality. And okay, so, so I, I guess I'm building on Justice Jamal's question. You could, you could read this you, to take your argument in two different ways. You could say they said quality, but they meant identity. Or you could say identity includes quality, I, includes uh, not, <clears throat> substantially important aspects of quality that's included in identity. Which, which, do you, which was the intention of the parties? Which I, I, is, I would it's submit quite important. I mean, it'll be super important to your colleague in a moment, so don't, don't give the wrong answer. But <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll leave it to him to answer. Oh, no, no, you better not, because this is, this is it's a little quizzical, if you'll allow me to say so, to deal with the exclusion clause before we know what we're excluding. But in any event, I'll, I'll let you answer. I think it would be the latter of your point, that it, it, they're incorporated. It's not, one, it's not mutually exclusive by necessity. The distinction between the two. And this is a finding which is not challenged. That challenge, that section 14, the legal nature of section 14 goes to, it, it goes to identity of the goods sold. This section is what the trial judge decided. It did, and so you are asking us to mix identity and quality when the clause refers only to quality. But the trial judge uh, distinguished those two. He did. Although at the end, in his application, he decided it was all the same. But if we look at the wording of the clause, 
And as uh, it was said in Sadva, we cannot uh, change uh, the words of an agreement. We can interpret the words in an agreement, but we cannot change them. And I'm, I'm not suggest, and by virtue of the judge's decision, I'm, I would suggest that his intention was not to change the words of the contract, but to look at the overall scope of what the parties were agreeing to and what they intended. And that's what, in my respectful submission, drove his analysis without distinguishing in the, at the end the word quality from Section 14. The Sale of Goods Act is an older piece of legislation. <clears throat> it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it, right? Uh, being old is not a sin. I think you would agree with that. <laughs> but uh, the, one of the things that how people conceived the law, how jurists conceived the law, was in a kind of categories. And that's reflected, I think, in the, in the structure of the legislation. Maybe it's implicit in all legislation. But you know, you've got sale by description, you've got sale by sample, you've got sale by identity, etc. And And they're kind of, once you fit it into one of those slots, there are certain consequences that follow from it. And we tend to look at things a bit differently these days if you're designing something, because you look at balances and sliding scales and countervailing principles and everything else. But this is the old view of the categories. And I think you, we, we would risk doing some violence to the structure of the act if we say, well, identity, quality, it's all sort of the same thing. Because the act is, is, is premised on the characterization of the sale in certain ways. So whether we like it or not, I mean, we're not the draftsman, draftsperson for the act. We have to kind of work with the uh, structure that's there. So whether something is in a box or in a, in a kind of a category, identity, sale by sample, whatever, really does matter. And to kind of depart from that is really to depart from the intention of the legislature as to how these things are analyzed. I, I understand that, and I think, in fairness, my associate may be better able to deal with that than I am. I'm not trying to foist it on him, but that's unfortunately where he's at. Um, unless you, uh, and, and in uh, the last part of the uh, standard of uh, review analysis was this. Um, there has been some suggestion by the intervener to revisit the issue of the standard of review because of um, SATFA and then LEDCOR and the interpretation of standard form contracts. In my submission, there's no reason to do so. Standard for, the court has said in standard form contracts where there's a take it or leave it or no bargaining, there's a precedential value. In a case like this, there is no precedential value. And so, and, or in most cases where the court's required to interpret a contract, there is very little precedential value, and therefore you don't have to revisit the issue and find some other middle ground between SATFA and LEDCOR. Uh, to, to um, determine uh, what, when you should intervene and when you shouldn't. Um, unless there are any further questions, I think I'd like to turn it over to my associate. Thank you.
Bear with me, Your Honours, as I move uh, technologically into this century. <laughs> I'm ready, Justice Cote. Chief Justice, Justices, so I am going to be addressing the issue of whether or not this transaction even falls within uh, the Section 14 of the Sale of Goods Act, uh, sale by description, and EarthCo makes two submissions on this broader issue. Number one is this is not a sale by description, but a sale by inspection, and therefore falls outside the scope of Section 14 of the Sale of Goods Act. And the second submission we make is alternately, uh, if this was a sale by description, then the soil composition or texture did not form part of the description. That went to quality, which is separate from description. So, <laughs> how can the trial judge found it was a sale by description and this finding was not challenged uh, by any of the parties before the Ontario Court of Appeal. So, how can you challenge it here? Um, so, uh, I would just suggest, Justice Cote, that we raise this issue in uh, our leave application and an appeal was granted at large to this court. Uh, whether there was a sale by description was plainly placed before the trial judge for determination. It was joined in issue and there's no question the trial judge made his determination that it was a sale by description. Um, we're now raising legal issues flushing out or delineating the boundary of what constitutes a sale by description and what constitutes the term description. This court, uh, by virtue of the trial judge dealing with the uh, factual record and making a determination uh, on sale by description issue has a full record before it uh, to determine this legal issue. Um, finally, I would suggest, uh, Justice Cote, that there is no prejudice uh, to um, the respondent uh, by virtue of raising this issue here. They're not taken by surprise. This was raised in our leave application and this was also uh, obviously uh, raised uh, very heavily in our factum. So let's say you have the right to uh, challenge this uh, finding. Why should we not pay difference to the trial judge finding about that? Because your uh, colleague here said to us that we have to pay difference to the findings of the trial judge. So why should we not pay difference to that finding? Because on, on these issues, uh, we would submit he made errors of law. Um, so, so uh, but, first... Okay, so if you go to Hausner and Nicolaisen, if the application of a legal test to the facts as found is reviewable on the standard of palpable and overriding error, save where there is an extricable question of law, <clears throat> as you're saying that he made certain findings, then he looked at the provisions of the Act, it seems to me that is a 
the application of a legal test mixed fact and law. And, and you're into palpable and overriding error unless you can come up with an extricable question of law, or do I have that wrong? No, that's right, Your Honor. Um, but we submit in this case he made what we say are two extricable errors of law. Um, the first extricable error of law is not uh, recognizing or applying uh, the law of whether or not this was a sale by inspection, which would take it out of the ambit of Section 14. And the second extricable error of law is uh, in applying uh, parts that were meant to um, refer to quality and fitting that under the definition of description, uh, being so, the soil composition and texture. So I understand, and you correct me if I misunderstood you, so the reason for which you are fighting so hard to have this a sale by inspection instead of a sale by description, it is because if it is a sale by inspection, the composition of the soil goes to the quality. Is it that? I, pardon me, I'm going to give you multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or is it that that more clearly tracks the wording of the, of the exclusion? In other words, come and have a look. If you, you know, here's your chance, right? So, so I'm not going to answer that as an A or B, um, but if you accept that this was in sale by inspection, then what happened was, uh, from a very fundamental uh, perspective, the parties, uh, the respondent had a right to inspect, it waived its right to inspect, caveat emptor, buyer beware, this is no longer uh, a section 14 sale by description with an implied term and the parties clearly contracted under clause 7 uh, quality is at your risk once it leaves the lot so there's no breach so there's no breach of anything of anything although if you they find did not get what they bargained for pardon me although they did not get according to the trial judge what they bargained for because you are you asking us to change that too well, no, um, not if this, so the party, the trial judge, when he says they didn't get what they were bargaining for, was looking through this through the lens of sale by, sale by description. And again, we say made two errors in doing so. The first is this was not a sale by description. Um, and secondly, um, and what's telling, in the, in the trial judge's decision where he references uh, what the description is, he refers to soil composition and texture as quality. And, and that's at, if you'll bear with me. That's at paragraph 100 of the trial decision. This is jumping forward to my second issue, perhaps, but um, 
what the trial judge finds is Earth Coast communication to Pine Valley promised it was selling our topsoil, which had the quality set out in the test results. Yeah, but he said after it qualities as he uses it here, he said it was not promising to sell any soil regardless of composition texture. So even if he used the word qualities, the following sentence showed that it goes to identity. Well, but that's, that's what we say is the legal error here, is he mixed up that the soil composition and texture really is fundamental equality, and the parts of the contract uh, that may have referred to soil texture and composition fall outside the scope of a description under Section 14. But can I just say that your argument about this being a sale by inspection when uh, the purchaser refuses to do an inspection sounds, uh, sounds like it's not really tethered to what was going on here. Well, so it's also, is it not also just to fault complete, uh, rather original category in the law of sale, a sale by inspection? I mean, do you mean sale by sample? What, what, what exactly well, do you mean? Well, it's, it's not a sale by sample. Okay. Um, sale by sample is something different. And, and, and you know, call it what you will, um, I use sale by inspection as a term of art. You could also just say not sale by description. What is your term of art? What does it mean to buy something by inspection? Do you, do you inspect every inch of soil? Like what, what, do you, what do you mean by sale by inspection? No, the, the, the cases have flushed out and we've seen this in, um, for example, the Provost and Gilmore case, which was uh, sale of the counterfeit coins where the, the purchaser had the coins in his possession for a week and well, wasn't that a sale with inspection? I mean, and they could throw out the coins that were fraudulent or counterfeit or whatever. That's right. And, and, but, but, the, but the Sale of Goods Act doesn't have a sale by inspection category. It does not have a separate standalone category. Um, as I said, you could just as easily call this not sale by description. Okay. I, I, I use sale by inspection as a term of art. Um, I don't mean to impute a separate category under the Sale of Goods Act or at law. Um, it's a short form. You're saying this is not a sale by description. I'm saying this that, is not a sale by description. That would be a safer thing to say because you're, you're offering to us the opportunity to create a, a category that f falls foul with the logic of the Sale of Goods Act, if, if I'm not mistaken. I, 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 I take your point. This is something that we're not buying this by description. We're not buying it by sample. That, that, so, that's, but in, to say, okay. This is just my short form for saying this falls outside the ambit of section uh, 14. Okay, so then can we get to what a sale of dis by description is then? And I mean, it, it seems to me that something that's sold under a name like our topsoil doesn't have any inherent um, uh, properties, I'm going to use the word properties as opposed to identities or, or qualities. Um, in the, unlike herring meal in Ashington Piggeries, which is a thing separate and apart. So if the description is of our topsoil and there's 
uh, the properties of that soil are attached by way of test results. How can that not be part of a description? Because it's a different type of, it, it, it's, it's sort of like a trade name that you're using and then you're saying, and it has this, these properties, whether so, they're in terms of composition and texture. Con context is important here and, and what's also important is Description is obviously not defined in the Sale of Goods Act. There, there's no clear delineation set out in the Sale of Goods Act. It's, it's fallen on um, sort of the cases to flush out what that is. The definition of uh, quality as opposed to description under the Sale of Goods Act is um, in paragraph one. It's defined to include a state or condition. That's also not supremely helpful in delineating what is the difference between uh, quality and uh, description or identity is, is what the cases have said description is really about. Um, in our submission, the if you boil it down uh, to its core, what quality refers to is either a level of excellence or a grading level or um, the ability to satisfy a functional purpose of the purchaser as opposed to a description or identity which is uh, it implies that there is a sameness and so so to satisfy functionally the purchaser Let's go to Ashington Piggeries. Do you think when the purchaser bought poisoned herring meal, that satisfied the purchaser? Maybe on your definition, Ashington Piggeries, Piggeries was wrongly decided. I mean, you know that the, so like, so, okay, so. It, it's the opposite, Your Honor. Well, just let me finish. Then you'll, you'll tell me that I'm happy to be told I'm wrong. So the, I understood and Justice Zarnett uh, notes this, but so, so if I'm not mistaken, so does the trial judge, that Norwegian herring meal remains Norwegian herring meal, whether it's poisoned or not. And so my question is, how does that, when the purchaser says, I can't feed this to my mink, they'll die if they eat it. This is not meal, this is not food, this is poison. Is that, that the is that identity or quality? That's quality. That's what Ashington Piggery said. That's what we say as well. That's quality. That that goes to serving a purpose. So so it's okay. But, Matt, but Matt, uh, Mr. Clement, in section fourteen, um, the implied condition uh, it was decided by the first judge and confirmed by the court of appeal goes to the identity, and you. You seem to acknowledge that because you, this is why you want a sale by inspection instead of a sale by description because you want to get rid of section 14. Well, we argue them in the alternative, um, but to the extent that the court finds that this is a sale by description, we would say that um, the soil composition and is quality. Is quality. And, and what's compelling, and, and to circle back to my answer before, 
about context. Um, if you look at the context of the negotiation leading up to the contract, if you turn to tab uh, 2.3 of the record of appeal, Said. 2.3. This is an email um, from the respondent to the appellant and it sets out what is the, the city specs. But this is an email uh, after the signing of the contract? Before. Before? Okay. Before. This is leading up to the signing of the, the, to the, signing of the contract. So there's several emails. What page are you on? It's of the PDF. It's page 143 of 228. It's at tab 2.3, and it's an email from Mr. Serrato to Mr. Outred dated October 3, 2011. looking at here is Pine Valley communicating to EarthCo what is in the city specs. What are, what are the expectations? And it bears uh, reminding that the purpose of this is so that they can create a dry pond to capture excess flooding. So they need topsoil that serves that function. And the specs that are being provided are not provided on a we need 100% compliance to a singular percentage across the board. They're given a range. Um, they need 45 to 70% sand, 1 to 35% clay, 10 to 20%. Uh, but aren't they given a choice between three types of topsoil and they choose one according to the properties or compositions or whatever? Uh, because they feel that it, they've decided it meets these specifications. Well, but it also bears re uh, reminding that the trial judge determined that the parties, including the purchaser, knew that topsoil is not static. It changes based on its handling. It changes based on the weather. There was no assurance that this was going to be the same topsoil uh, at the time it was purchased from uh, a, a test that was taken almost a month and a half prior. Um, That's fair, but that doesn't that go to whether or not uh, the, the seller should have a, an exclusion clause in all cases where they do something by description if it's organic and changing. It doesn't change that this is a sale by description and that the properties go to identity. Well, but what it does, uh, Your Honor, and viewed in context, so you have a purchaser who knows that the, that, that the composition changes and it's malleable. And you have the city uh, that says, we need certain compliance with specs, but it doesn't have to be, there's a range for each of the composition, for clay, silt, sand. They're not purchasing 
this, at least the texture, on the basis that it is 100% sameness to the test result. They're purchasing it on the basis that the quality is going to relatively conform to their purpose. It's going to fall within the grade that was acceptable to the city. You see, I don't follow that because if this seems to me, I mean, you, you seem to be, I have to tell you, you, you seem to be arguing the other side because there's, there's considerable specificity here. This is the description of, of this is what I want. He's not saying, I want soil which will drain at a certain pace, right? That's, and, and therefore, give me something which will have this fitness for purpose, this quality that, you know, water will drain through it, you know, uh, so many liters per cubic, or not cubic, but square meter in, per minute. Okay, and, and so then I'd rely on your expertise to give me something which fulfill that purpose. Instead of that, the purchaser is saying, give me uh, soil which has these characteristics and I'm going to rely on my own expertise or my own contractual arrangement with the, the municipality to, to ensure that it is fit for purpose. Just give me the, give me, something which has uh, characteristics A, B, and C. That's all I'm asking. That, that seems to me an absolutely classic uh, sale by description. But again, Your Honor, that, that ignores that this, the composition or texture is a measure of grade and it's on a scale. No, 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 but say, I want X. Now, if you don't give me X, you haven't given me what I've bargained for. And you were saying, well, I've got this pile in my, in my yard here, and if I leave it there for two months, it might have different characteristics. That's your problem. I say, give me, when it comes off the lot, when the, when the truck drives out, it should have certain characteristics. And you say, look, well, I've had it here for three months. Three months ago, it was great. Maybe it's no good now. Well. That's your problem, not mine. I, because I bargained for these, these characteristics. And you're saying, well, you could have inspected it. Uh, but it still amounts to the fact you didn't get what, he didn't get what he bargained for. But, but, but that goes to, there's a, there's a difference between implied terms under the, under the Sale of Goods Act and a representation. And you can have parts of a quality, parts of a contract that refer to quality. And it's not that you didn't bargain for those parts of the quality. It's not that, you know, at, in Ashington Piggeries, it's not that the, the contract didn't have um, certain quality terms embedded in the contract. It's just that those parts that refer to quality do not form part of the identity. They're not implied under the Sale of Goods Act. All right. <clears throat> You, are, you have only three minutes left, but I, you know, I understand your argument. I may not accept it, but uh, at the end of the day, there is a non-liability provision. There is Section 53 also of the Act. And could you explain to me how the Court of Appeal got it wrong, if, it, if they got it wrong? Sorry, in, in terms of Section 53? Okay. Well, um, the, the Court of Appeal we say made an extricable error of law in section 53. Um, 
the, the first is, uh, in terms of its statutory interpretation, it superimposed the standard of essentially what I'll call the Hunter Standard that's not contained in the Act. And, and as uh, my colleague uh, submitted, um, all that's contained in the Act under Section 53 is express agreement. That could be oral, written, it just has to be expressed. There's no superimposed standard in the Act. And we say that that's an extricable error of law. Um, so I'm closing in on two minutes. You say that uh, in the exclusion clause where it refers to uh, EarthCo not being responsible for the quality of the material, that in a sense, it, essentially, looking at the course of conduct and the entire circumstances, including this email, it's really referring back to that email. It's referring to the, the composition when it refers to the quality of the material. It's the, the mix of um, clay, uh, sand, etc. That, that's exactly what that's all it comes down that, to. That's they use it, the word quality, but they're referring back to that email, well, which what, goes to Justice Rowe's point that this is a sale by description. What they're, what they're referring to under Section 7 when they say quality, they're not referring back to the Sale of Goods Act and the definition of quality is defined therein. What the parties are looking at in terms of quality under Section 7 is what is the soil composition and texture. That, that's, it, it was clear to the trial judge in we submit it was clear to the parties. That's really what it boils down to. To determine, does that language suffice to ask the implied uh, statutory condition in section 14? Well, uh, and as my colleague submitted, we would say it does. Um, the, the, it goes back to the intention of the parties. The intention of the parties here was that uh, soil tech, texture and composition uh, was at the purchaser's risk. And to the extent that this court does find that soil texture and composition is part of the identity or description, uh, notwithstanding my submissions, it was still clear to the parties when they said quality, that's what they were referring to, that they were contracting out of. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Scalisi. Chief Justice, Justices, Pine Valley purchased topsoil. 
It entered into an agreement with the appellant Earthco, an agreement that had, in my respectful submission, four salient provisions. The first was the description of the goods or the topsoil, a very narrow and specific description, the right to test the topsoil. Thirdly, that if Pine Valley chose not to test the topsoil before delivery, that it was that Earthco would not be responsible for the quality of the topsoil. And finally, the price. Ultimately, Pine Valley chose not to have the soil tested, and, and Mr. Clayman rightly pointed out the reason for that was because it had to meet its contractual obligations under a prime contract with the City of Toronto. There was no reason for Pine Valley to test that soil. Pine Valley went to Earthco, a very sophisticated supplier of topsoil in the GTA. They were the expert. They knew what they were supposed to supply, and they didn't do that. By not doing that, they breached Section 14 of the Act, of the Sale of Goods Act, by not providing the goods, which were very, very specifically described in the contract. Mr. Scalise, you say that there was no reason for Pine Valley to test uh, the topsoil. Why did we, uh, do we have a clause in the contract about uh, testing the quality? So the, the evidence at trial was that, that, uh, that EarthCo wanted a provision in the, in the contract to ensure that the soil was tested before, uh, before delivery. Otherwise, they were, not, they were not going to guarantee the quality of the soil. But the contractual provisions are specific. And, and His Honor spent quite a lot of time doing the analysis in SATFA and coming to the conclusion that we weren't buying any topsoil. We were buying topsoil based on this sample, based on those specific test results, based on the approval of the consultant. It was very specific. And I'd like to start with the, the standard of I just of stopped you. So when I look at the contract, you say it's very specific, but when I look at it in front of me, it's not as described specific. That's correct. If you look at the, the actual wording of the contract, Justice Obanswin, what, what you see is reference to topsoil. It doesn't even say our topsoil, if I recall correctly. It just, it just says topsoil. But that's why His Honor embarked on the, the investigation that's required of him, uh, that's mandated by SAFTA, Sat, SATVA, where he looked at the, the contextual circumstances. And that's when he looked at the fact that there were, in fact, several samples that were provided. Pine Valley had discussions with EarthCo about about whether or not they could work. And ultimately, when they were looking at the art topsoil sample, they went back to the consultant to get final approval. So his honor was correct, and I would submit he's entitled to deference on that finding that Pine Valley wasn't purchasing any topsoil. Pine Valley was purchasing that the topsoil with the, the, the composition that was outlined specifically and approved by the consultant. 
And so in terms of going to the, the standard of review, his honor is entitled to deference. There's ample evidence on the record that supports his findings in that regard. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think I've heard um, the appellant tell us why, uh, you know, what the palpable and overriding error is, is in those findings. In Sorry. Can we go to the specific paragraph that you're inviting us to show deference to? Because I mean, we have to be specific when we Certainly in, write in, all this up. In terms of his honor's reasons? When you say his honor, you mean the trial judge? The trial judge, yes. Okay. There so if we go to, yeah, I think it's starting at, uh, uh, just bear with me, Justice Kasner. It's uh, paragraph 100. Mm -hmm. It's at tab one of the record. And his honor starts at, at uh, paragraph 100 and says, in the case at bar, I find that there was a sale by description. Of course, the contract, and to Justice Obonsolin's point, the contract only refers to soil. Under section 14, Earthco argues that Pine Valley got what it bargained for, soil. However, in my opinion, when the factual circumstances existing at the time are examined, including the provision by Earthco of test results of three soils, Earthco's communication to Pine Valley promised that it was selling our topsoil, which had the qualities set out in the test results. It was not promising to sell any soil, regardless of composition texture. The evidence establishes that but for the exclusionary clauses, Pine Valley could fairly and reasonably have refused to accept the soil on the grounds that it did not correspond to the test results. So I'm going to stop you there because I'd like to just push you Certainly. just a little further. So, so um, the trial judge refers to bargaining for soil. I go back to the contract at page 201 and I see the contract described in this contract by description as screen topsoil with extra organics added. Right. So it's more than just the word soil. Right. It's it doesn't say our soil. Um, he goes on to say the fa factual circumstances, as, as you read out, um, extend to the test results of three soils. Earth Coast communication to Pine Valley promised that it was selling our topsoil, which had, now here's the word that I'm stumbling over, and I would need your help on this, which had the qualities set out in the test results. So my question to you is, is that an important word for our deference? And if so, what does it do to the law as, as we understand it? Is it possible to say, well, he was still speaking to identity, the trial judge. He was actually saying, in a sale by description, Ashington Piggeries, he cited it already, extends to identity. In this particular case, I interpret the contract to, so that the description includes identity, which extends to not just soil, not just our soil, but our soil with these compositions. I don't have to talk about quality. You see, you see, you see my question? Why did he speak about quality here if he was speaking only to identity? Because, or conversely, was he act saying 
certain qualities are included in identity, notwithstanding what the jurisprudence under the Sale of Goods Act has said up to, to date. That's, that's my question. So, and I think your, your question, Justice Kasver, um, deals exactly what Pine Valley submits as the error. The trial judge didn't appreciate the distinction between identity and quality. Ultimately, when you look at Ashington Piggeries, Ashington Piggeries makes it clear that Section 14 goes to the identity of the goods. It does not deal with quality. They are completely separate matters and they're dealt separately in the act. I agree. As I said, is it possible to say what he really meant was after having started his paragraph, this is a sale by description, after having cited Ashington Piggeries and indicated his intention to follow it, including famously page 503 in the speech by, um, by Lord Diplock, what he really was saying was in this contract, it wasn't described as soil, it wasn't described as our soil, it was described as our soil as having these, these uh, my colleague uh, Martin used the word properties, I think it's a helpful word, because it takes us outside of this, this psychodrama is what is equality, quality, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and consequently we owe deference, we can owe deference to this notwithstanding the fact that he may have misspoken with the word quality there. Obviously it's possible, um, but frankly it's an error. And it's difficult in the context of soil to appreciate the distinction between identity and quality, because um, ultimately, as, as the court knows, what happened was we got soil, or Pine Valley got soil that, that, had, um, that, that, wasn't, that didn't allow for the proper drainage. The clay content was way too high. And so it's easy to, to conflate the two concepts of identity and, and, uh, and quality. But think of a different product. Think of a different good. Think of um, a guitar or a, or a car. Um, Gibson makes guitars, so does Fender. Um, they're both professional level guitars. They both have six strings. They both plug into an amplifone. But if I order a Gibson, but I get a Stratocaster, I'm allowed to give the Stratocaster back because my contract was for the Gibson. Well, it depends on the factual matrix. You'd say, wouldn't you say that? I mean, you can't say that for every contract for the purchase of a guitar. You'd have to go into every single contract, look at, the, and that's what Sattva, Cornerbrook, that's what we're told to do. And consequently, we, we have to resist, unless it's a standard form contract, in which case perhaps we can, we, LEDCOR, we can uh, approach it differently. Well, of course, we'd have to look at the factual matrix, and I think His Honor did that, um, and quite properly found that that was the description. And, and I think that's a finding that my friend can't get over. The, the problem with the appellant's position is that they're, they're not they're not making a distinction between the two sections. One deals with identity, and, and as Justice Rowe pointed out earlier, once you fit within that section, there are certain consequences. And so that's 
what we have here. We have a situation where there was a sale by description, but Pine Valley didn't get what was described in the contract. So, Mr. Scalisi, um, they are challenging that on the other side. They yes. say it was not a sale by description, it was a sale by inspection. Do they have the right to challenge this at this level, given the fact that it was a finding which was not challenged before the Court of Appeal? What is your position on that? So uh, my, my factum deals with that. I, I pointed that out, that, that in fact there was no challenge of that finding. Um, my friend has properly stated that in terms of the leave, they, they did give notice of that. Um, my view is I think it's, it's very difficult for now to this, this court to look at that position and say, but if you didn't challenge it earlier, why should you have the right to challenge it? But that's ultimately not my decision. But it does not change your position that difference is owed to the trial judge qualification of the Absolutely. The because, because going to the, and again, on, on the issue of the, the standard of review, ultimately when you look at the three errors that, that uh, Justice Zarnett identified in his reasons at the Court of Appeal, those reasons had to do with statutory interpretation, the failure to appreciate the Hunter test, and then the use of the factual matrix beyond its legal limit. Those are all issues of law. Those are all, in my view, exactly what Justice Rothstein contemplated in Sattva when he said that there could be extricable issues. Those are all extricable issues of law. The stand, he's not entitled, the trudge is not entitled to deference on those issues, and the standard is correctness. In terms of, just to make it clear, in terms of his Honor's findings in, um, uh, uh, in terms of the description, that is, as again, Justice Rowe pointed out earlier, a, a classic uh, uh, applying sattva and interpreting the factual matrix based on that. And that, for that finding, uh, his Honor is entitled to, to deference. And in the agreed statement of facts, you've used the word specifications to the point that was just made. Yes. Uh, specifications being the uh, sand, silt, and clay. Right. Um, does the case really come down to then the word quality used in clause seven of the exclusion clause, uh, clause language? And that if it hadn't used the word quality but said specifications, um, that, that you wouldn't have a case, that, they, that then we would be done because it would refer, exclude specifically specifications uh, rather than quality. I don't know if I could, could agree with that um, assertion, Justice Jamal, because I think what you may have is a situation where you've essentially swapped the descriptions instead of using the R topsoil results uh, with the added uh, um, organic matter, you would then put in, put putting in the, the specifications. And I, I, think, I think there would still be a case, um, in, my, in my view. Um, the, but the real crux of the matter, forgetting about the word quality, because I think um, although the position is, is predicated upon the facts of, 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 of a finding of, of a sale by description, in my respectful submission, the crux of the issue before you is the fact that the exclusionary clause does not deal with the, the particular condition that we, are, we say has been breached, which is section 14. 
And if you look at the Hunter cases and the cases that um, in Hunter, uh, Justice Dixon, I think, relied on the Shabbat case, and then there was another case, Gregorio, in the, in the, in the Court of Appeal. All those cases dealt with warranties, statutory warranties. So what, what, what more could EarthCo have done? Right. Tell me what they could have done and should have done. Sure. They, in my respectful submission, the, what they should have done is they should have stated specifically in the agreement that there were no, no statutory warranties um, being given. And conditions. I, and, and conditions. I, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I, I didn't make that distinction. You're absolutely <laughs> right. And, and if you look at uh, Mr. Clayman Sr. indicated that, uh, that, you know, there are no magic words. Well, there are. There are magic words. Because if you look at those decisions, if you look at Hunter, if you look at IPEX, if you look at Halliburton, they all talk about there's no reference to statutory conditions or warranties. And that's, those words should be in there. Now, I suppose I, I might be taking a different um, position if there was reference to the particular uh, clause in the, uh, in the agreement and said, you know, we're not guaranteeing the description of the matter as in the purchase order or contract. But I think the safest position for any seller of goods like soil, hay, herring meal, whatever, is to say we make no warranty uh, as to statutory warranties and conditions. And if they do that, then there isn't a problem. And I think that's been the law since Hunter. And there is no reason to change that. But Hunter. paragraph 47 in Satwa talks about the practical common sense approach. And what you're talking about is not that. So. Thank you for that question. And I think that goes to the issue that Mr. Mr. Clayman has raised regarding the, um, the, the common, the intentions of the parties. Because I think that's what, what, the, what the purpose of SATFA is and the goal of contractual interpretation. The problem is you have to superimpose the legislation. The legislation's there for a reason. It's consumer protection legislation. It's there to protect buyers. Um, and the act allows an out. The act allows the parties to, to contract out of the statutory protection, but they have to do so in an express, explicit, clear and direct manner. Okay, you really put your finger on a point that I wanted to uh, follow up on. The, the, the wording used in section 53 is express agreement. So that's the statutory provision which has to be given effect. Is, is the exclusionary clause one which constitutes an express agreement having regard to the subject matter of that which is to be excluded? Because you can have, you can have ex, an express agreement to exclude liability on, for example, the delivery date. But if there's no problem with the delivery date, it's the quality of the goods, then, you know, it just, it's, it's not relevant. But so is there express agreement as to an exclusionary clause that relates to the, the basis of the alleged breach? And, and here the, the trial judge, I note that the trial judge said that in the absence of the exclusion clause, there would be a breach in liability. Okay, to come back to express agreement. In 
decisions such as uh, Hunter Engineering and others, there has been, I won't say imposed upon the words express agreement, but sort of found within express agreement, certain almost formalities, I wouldn't go so far as to say magic words, but certain characteristics as to the, as to the uh, specificity perhaps of the uh, express agreement. And one of the questions that I think this court is going to have to reflect upon is, has the general law of contract developed such that some of those formalities that have been read into express agreement in a sense fall away and that express agreement is given a contextual, itself is given a contextual meaning more akin to the ordinary interpretation of a contract. In other words, there's an odd parallel between this, it seems to me, and Cornerbrook, which is a case that I had a certain hand in, which was that in exclusionary clauses um, relating to uh, releases, releases actually rather than exclusion, to releases, there were a lot of technical rules. And we said that the, 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 the development of the general law of contract had made those particular rules relating to uh, uh, release clauses obsolete. They were superseded by general rules. And I guess I'm wondering, I'm trying to be clear, forgive me because it sounds a bit rambling, but when we give meaning to express agreement, do we simply say, see Hunter Engineering and similar or in cases that follow on it, which give it a sort of a technical requirements, or do we say that the general development of contract law has somehow superseded the technicalities required by Hunter Engineering so that what is an express agreement within 53 is informed by cases like Satva and Ledcor and Cornerbrook. I'm not sure if I've made myself clear there. I, I think I understand, Justice Rowe, and, and my answer to that is obviously this case is different than, than Cornerbrook. Um, Cornerbrook dealt with a release, uh, I think, of an, of an accident, and I think it came down to the interpretation of the word accident, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, here we're talking about a statute. We're talking about a section. We're talking about a section that, that, that imposes a liability, and we're talking about a section that gives you an out. In, in my respectful submission, cases like Hunter um, and the others are just interpreting that section and telling you what is meant by express agreement. And that is explicit, clear, and direct wording. I think the, the, the gravamen of the question that Justice Rowe ask you, and you'll correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, is that express agreement, yes, we have to interpret that question of law. Hunter provides uh, interpretation of that, um, says clear, direct. The law has developed since then. Written agreements, the words used, are not the only way to make an express agreement clearly and directly. Cases like Sattva and Cornerbrook 
encourage us to, indeed in the very language of Cornerbrook, um, the, uh, the uh, facts surrounding the formation of a contract are relevant to its interpretation. So that when we look at six and seven, and we look for the express agreement in keeping both with Hunter and with the new cases, we can say, yes, it's included uh, based on the factual matrix. I, th I think that's the, that's the full thing. Or do we stop dead with Hunter? Well, um, so obviously the, the, the law and contractual interpretation has, has changed starting with SATFA. Um, and and I, I think there's no question about that. And, and frankly, I, I understand the, 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 the view that might be being expressed. But my view is that there's nothing in Satfa, Cornerbrook, or Ledcor that changes any of this analysis. Because ultimately, again, and I come back to the statute, and I come back to the, the reasons for the statute. And having clear, explicit, expressed, direct language is reasonable, commercially reasonable, and it provides certainty. And there's no reason, there's no good policy reason in my respectful submission to move away from that. Now, whether we characterize, you know, Hunter's a full stop and that's what we do, or whether you look more carefully at the, at the factual, factual matrix, either way, I think you come to the same conclusion. The conclusion is that what was ultimately described in the contract is not what we were provided. And there was very clearly a breach. Once we establish the breach, we go to the exclusionary clause. And when we look at the exclusionary clause, the exclusionary clause does not specifically deal with the statutory, implied statutory condition of identity. And that's the mistake that the trial judge made. Because ultimately his factual findings, like we followed him right to the end, but ultimately he did not appreciate the distinction between identity and quality. He did not uh, appreciate the, the required wording, which you have to make a reference to, statutory, to a statutory condition, or at the very least, the fact that you're excluding more than just quality, including identity, and he didn't do that. So, Mr. Scalisi, um can we say that, uh, do I understand your position that here, because we are interpreting a statute first, I mean section 53 and the wording of express agreement, the factual matrix is not relevant. The factual matrix will be relevant when we interpret the word quality in the contract. But as far as the uh, interpretation of the meaning of the statute, the factual matrix is not uh, relevant. And this is, I think, what Justice Zarnett said in paragraph 35 of his reasons when he said that one of the errors uh, that the trial judge uh, made is the use of the factual matrix to inform the meaning of the express exclusionary language. I agree with that, Justice Cote. In fact, I would go even a step further because what, what in effect, what he ended up doing was he ended up changing the word quality to identity in order to make it work, and, and, and that's just wrong. 
So yes, I would agree with, with what you just asserted. But it, didn't the Court of Appeal go further even than Hunter? Uh, Hunter talks about direct and clear. The Court of Appeal required it to be explicit. And, and so hold that thought for a moment. And then the Court of Appeal um, makes, uh, looks at the cases that say in an exclusionary clause situation in the Sale of Goods Act, when you exclude a warranty, you don't exclude a condition, right? These cases can be readily understood on the basis that the legal consequence of a breach of warranty is one thing. The, breach of con um, the legal consequences for a condition allow you to um, repudiate the contract and get a, a different sorts of remedies. So I understand that. But what the Court of Appeal has then done is taken this condition warranty distinction um, and has superimposed the identity quality distinction in Ashington Piggeries, which itself didn't even ever deal with an exclusionary clause. Ashington Piggeries, there's no exclusion clause there. It's just a question of, um, almost a metaphysical question, of deciding what, what properties are identity, when does it cease to be herring meal, and what part properties are quality in terms of contaminated or not. So it seems to me that there's a lot of this going on in terms of the Court of Appeal. Moving um, the yardstick on explicit and then making an analogy between conditions and warranties that will not hold on identity and qualities when we're talking about a contract, the factual matrix of which is that these are not independent obligations that exist without some qualification. An exclusion clause can eat up the obligation, as it were. So we're not just doing one, two, three, sale of description, breach, whatever. There's also a view that the exclusion clause bites into the obligation. So isn't, that's a long question, but how do you deal with those problems um, in the Court of Appeals analysis? But in, I, th I think to Justice Cote's point, once we, once we get, so as I understand um, Justice Zarnett's decision, I think Justice Zarnett identified the three errors that I identified earlier. Um, in terms of the exclusionary clause, I, I think the law, we have to embark on a, on a, uh, uh, a review of the, the Turcon decision and, and, and his, honor, his honor did that. But ultimately, and I go back to this, it's, it's the statute. It's the statute that is superimposed. It's a policy uh, decision that the legislature has made with respect to the, the, the statute. And, and in order for you to get away or to eat at the obligation, it has to be done in a certain way. It has to be an express agreement. But the judicial overlay that the express agreement has to either uh, talk about a condition or a warranty or has to go to quality or identity or has to be not just direct and clear, but explicit in terms of which sections, that's, that's not from the statute. That's from, from judicial interpretation of what an express agreement means. Well, that could be, Justice Martin, but 
from, from Pine Valley's perspective, we have a finding of fact that tells us that, and, and which we obviously agree with, that says there has been a breach of the identity obligation. Once that happens, um, you then have, you, you then look at the, at, the, at the exclusion. But again, and I go back to the third error that, that, that Justice Zarnett says his honor made at trial, and that is there's a legal limit to the factual matrix. You have to look at the wording of the exclusion clause. Right, but there's nothing that says that the exclusion clause, such as it is, referring to quality, necessarily imports in the legal distinction between identity and quality in Ashington Piggeries. I mean, why, why can't we look at that and say, what would a reasonable person in this commercial context understand by the quality of the soil when they were negotiating for its composition, texture, properties, what, whatever specifications, um, what else could quality mean? Is, is quality just whether it's contaminated or not, like in the, in the Ashington Piggery sense? Or does quality mean something different between these people in this factual matrix when we're looking at the exclusion clause, not at whether or not there's a breach? But that's another issue that, that I have with the exclusion clause, because I'm not sure what quality means. Does it mean high quality? Does it mean low quality? Does it mean, um, what does it mean? Ultimately, what I rely on, and as a purchaser, what I would want to rely on is, what did I bargain for? What, what, what did I expect to get? Isn't that, Justice Arnett, uh, in terms of that third legal error that uh, he identified, he said that the problem is that the trial judge read the language of the clause in broader terms than their actual words, which neither the requirement for express and explicit language nor proper resort to the factual matrix permits. So when he says that the trial judge read the clause in broader terms than their actual words, I think he says that because he came to the conclusion, Justice Arnett, that identity and quality were two different concepts that's right. in the sale of goods act. Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. And that's, that's, it's very important in the context of the legislation. They are separate. So merchantable quality, fitness has nothing to do with identity. And, and so that's why I always come back to if, if we're in, subject to the exclusionary clause, obviously, if you fit within the parameters of section 14 and you don't get that, then there's been a, you don't get what you, what you bargained for, then, then there's been a breach. And, and, and that's exactly, I think, the point that Justice Sarnat made. But the bargain, you, you, you sort of, it sounds like you sort of want your cake and eating it too. You argue, argued hard for the bargain on this section 14 point, and in fact, the judge gave you your bargain on par at paragraph 100 that you read to us. He said, uh, you know, this was, this was the deal. At, so why not apply the same logic and the same deference to the judge when he said that 126 and 127 on the exclusion clause, that was the deal? Why are you suddenly saying, well, it's all different at the exclusion end. We've got to have some magic language here. We've got to have a statutory reference. We've got to, we, if we've got an express agreement, and that express agreement is clear, it's just you done in a 
it's not done in, what did you say earlier? They should have had reference to the statutory warranties and conditions, but no, not magic words. They, they had a deal. Why can't we just go on the deal? I think we're going based on the deal. And, and again, the, if you look at the deal and if you look at the wording in the exclusionary clause, it has nothing to do with identity. What, by, by, you're saying the trial judge would, would tell on the deal, we say, okay, we're going to trust the trial judge. He was there. He heard the parties. He read the evidence on the, at the front end. But at the back end, we don't, we're not going to trust him on, the de cutting, on his appreciation of the deal here. It just sounds sort of unfair the way you're, way you're approaching it. Well, I, with respect, I, I think I'm, 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 the analysis is the same as it is in SATFA, and that is there's a, a legal limit to the factual circumstances, and you can't go beyond the words of the agreement in terms of if the agreement says quality, and again, I, I still am not saying that I know what that means because I'm not sure what that means. But if the agreement says quality, how can it be identity? Identity, that's the issue in this. That was the issue at trial, and we've been, Pine Valley's been very consistent throughout. That was the issue at trial, that was the issue on the appeal, and that's the issue now. The issue is the identity, not the quality. And my respectful submission is you can't import the language not responsible for the identity of the goods because that's not what the agreement says. But, but if the parties themselves meant something different than the House of Lords in 1972, surely we should turn our minds to what they wanted and that that's what the judge seems to do. Is that, is that, not, is that not right? I mean, it, the, the, the word quality wasn't fixed for all contracting parties in Ashington Piggeries. In terms of Ashington Piggeries, I, I, going back to Ashington Piggeries, that was a case very different than this one. And I think the reason it's in all the materials is because it, it talks, it, it, it clearly sets out or delineates the distinction between identity and quality. But in Ashington Piggeries, they, the, the seller sold Norwegian herring meal. There was nothing else in the contract other than I think there was some wording of average quality. Well, no one the knew. Word meal, the word meal was used. And yes. That's not an unimportant word when you're considering that you're buying poison instead of food. Well, anyway. except that no one, you know, no one, Justice Kaiser, no one knew that it was poisonous, right? Ultimately, the seller didn't know and the buyer didn't know until after. But again, I, I think it's different here. I think you have a seller, an expert seller of soil who knows exactly what needs to be delivered and didn't deliver it. So we've, I think it's, it's very different. We've spoken a lot kind about of like the old joke about uh, meat not fit for human consumption, only suitable for sausages. We've spoken a lot about contractual interpretation, but of course when we're interpreting section 53 we're looking at statutory interpretation. Yes. And that means we go to the modern approach to statutory interpretation, look at text, context and purpose, which we haven't really spoken about much today, nor is it discussed much in the factums. And when we do look at the text context of Section 53, it does refer to express agreement, but it also refers to course of dealing between the parties, usage, if the usage is such as to bind both parties to the contract. So when we take a full modern approach to 
the interpretation of Section 53, doesn't it tend to cut against the uh, the um, interpretation in in uh, Hunter Engineering somewhat, in terms of having a stricter approach? I mean, this is for sort of at the almost uh, uh, before the modern approach had been ascendant in the way it is today. And I recognize we're dealing with sale of goods legislation, which has its own principles of interpretation. But at the end of the day, we are inter interpreting a statute. So I guess all I'm saying is, when we look at the provision in its context, isn't it broader than the approach that is espoused in Hunter Engineering? It, um, again, my respectful submission is that there's nothing inconsistent between in Satfa, Cornerbrook, and Leadcore with what I'm proposing, which is ultimately there needs to be certainty and clarity. This is a very, probably not a word, but mercantilistic area of law. I mean, it comes we, to Justice Kazira's point about the deal, right? Right, and and but but ultimately, ultimately, you can't go beyond the words. You can't go beyond the words of the exclusionary clause. The onus, the onus is on, uh, on the on the in this case the Earthco, to show that that it applies. And ultimately, again, how can quality and exclusion related to quality? apply to, to uh, uh, the identity of the goods. I guess my problem is there seems to be a certain generosity of interpretation at the front end and at the back end when we're dealing with the exclusion. That seems to be absent. Well, in terms of, uh, you know, we can look at the approach in Turcon, but if we look at the approach in Turcon, as I read Turcon, ultimately the court looked and, and gave effect to the overriding um, statutory scheme of the act that dealt with procurement and in my respectful submission it's the same thing here ultimately you have to look at the sale of goods act and you have to look at the underlying policy behind the act there's a reason for the distinction in the act for those provisions but looking at quality it's basically the composition of the topsoil and that's an essential um, characteristic that is identity well, well, again, I, I, in my, in my view, again, this is all about identity, and 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 the and the and the goods are very, very specifically and very narrowly defined. One of the reasons why, in in Ashington Piggeries, the court found that uh, that that it was a sale by description, and and that the section hadn't been breached, is because it had such a broad. It was just herring, Norwegian herring meal. There wasn't anything about particular components of it or uh, adding something to it. But here, in our specific situation, we're talking about a very specific um, composition of the soil. And, and once we don't get that, there's a problem. But that not that what you were, or I can't recall, you or your colleague who brought us back to the October 2011 email that talked about this specific composition and then that leads me back to uh, Satvia, the paragraph, what was it, 42 or whatever it was that I referred to, uh, that you got to look at the whole context. Like you're looking at it so limited, it's contrary of my reading of Satva, unless I'm, I'm reading it wrong. 
Respectfully, I disagree. I, I don't think there's anything inconsistent between that approach and SATFA. Um, ultimately, we're, we're looking at the statute and we're looking at a legal principle that's been a, that was established many years ago and which has served, which has been the policy uh, and the law for many years. And, and my respectful submission, that specifically is not something that's in, in, uh, in need of change. I just want to talk a, a little bit about um, uh, the, the issue my, my friend raised about um, the common intentions of the parties and the, and the right to contract. And I, and I would just like to say that ultimately the parties had every opportunity um, to negotiate out of the, the statutory condition that, that's implied by statute, but that just wasn't done in this case. Um, or, or let's go back to the basic principle that a contract is about risk allocation. Um, when you say it wasn't done, um, your friends opposite would say that's exactly what was done, that the history of the email conversations were um, basically uh, to your client, you should, you should do the tests again because we know the nature uh, of this uh, product is organic and it will shift. And it's, you know, you should wait. It'll take a week, it'll take five days, it'll take whatever. And your client, for their own pressing reasons in terms of a, a contract on with the city, decided that they would rather risk the composition uh, or properties of the soil than to pay the liquidated damages to the city. Why don't we take that risk allocation, the conscious choice to proceed in the face of a recognized risk as, as having an impact here? So the, again, we have to look at the context, talking about the factual matrix. Well, we are, we are for, this for this particular point. The, the reality is, is that you, you could test every load. You could test, and, and remember, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of dirt. Um, you know, the, at the bottom of this, of this dry pond or soccer fields where, where children play soccer, um, and ultimately, if you, if you, the theory at trial, the, the Earth Coast theory was that, look, you batch it, and so you batch it, we, we put it together, um, you know, we have, we have to test it, and you should test it before it goes. It's just not realistic uh, commercially. Ultimately, the contract, the prime contract did not require any testing of the soil, um, but what we did do is Pine Valley went to the consultant and said, look, this is what they can give us. Do you approve this? So what I would say is in a commercial context, it's just not practical to test every load of, of soil. And, and what happens, what would have happened if we tested two or three and they were fine and then we saw, you know, would we be in the same position? The point here, respectfully, is that ultimately Pine Valley knew what it, wanted, Earthco knew what it had to give us, and, and we didn't get it. So, so let, let me ask you again pointedly about a paragraph in the, this time the Court of Appeal judgment, just to see if we got the law right, because sure. we have to worry about that. 
So as my number of my colleagues have pointed out, Section 53 interprets statutory interpretation question of law. The Court of Appeal, paragraph 67. And that paragraph 67. The yes, I have that. The last sentence here. This is when, when the, how the exclusion clause works. When it works, the law requires the condition to be considered included in the party's agreement. That's, you know, it's by default it's included unless, and this is where I'm tripping up, but you, you may tell me I'm, I'm being, unless by their express language. So we're worrying about what express agreement means. By their express language, they can be taken to have turned their minds to the implied condition and explicitly, clearly, and directly agreed to exclude it. Is that more than the statute requires? So my respectful submission is that the Hunter decision and the decisions that followed it come from an interpretation of Section 53. And this is the interpretation. It has to be clear, direct, and explicit. And so that's, that's the law. And that is the, the standard or the principle that was set in Hunter. And it's been the law since. Your, so, your friend on the other side says that uh, it is too severe to do that because he said uh, maybe it's good for sophisticated parties, but for unsophisticated parties, he says that it, it could be problematic to follow Hunter. What do you have to say on that? Well, my first submission would be these were very sophisticated yes, parties. Yes, here. Yeah. Right. So you have, again, one of the largest topsoil um, suppliers in the, GT, in the greater Toronto area. You had Pine Valley, who was a very sophisticated um, constructor of, of this type of, of, of work. So that, was, that would be my first submission. In terms of, of, um, of the second scenario, it may be severe, but everybody knows, and the law is clear. And if there isn't reference to the exclusion of a statutory condition, it's not excluded. And I think to me, that's a certainty, and I think the intervener will speak to that, that we want in commercial agreements of this type. So I will um, end with this. I, in my view, the law has been this way since Hunter. There is absolutely no reason for us to revisit it because it's good policy. Um, the statute is there for a reason and it can only be contracted out of if there is e explicit, clear and direct, direct language. So subject to any questions you may have, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Reply. Oh, intervention first. I'm sorry. Thank you, Chief Justice. Topolsky, I'm sorry. Thank you, Chief Justice. Um, I, we submitted a condensed book with an outline of argument that will speak to our submissions on, uh, on extricable errors of law and potentially some clarity that could get to it. I would, with your permission, Chief Justice, however, focus my submissions on the issues of certainty and the interactions between Hunter and the Sales of Good Act, um, if that would assist the court. 
We heard from the appellant that there was a dichotomy between justice and certainty, a dichotomy that we think is not, uh, does not hold because certainty is in many cases justice and fairness. Businesses across the country, small, medium, and large need certainty to know how they contract and what they're entering into. And certainty in and of itself lends itself to access to justice. In an age where it takes more than five years to get to trial, this case took eight um, from the delivery of the soil and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So let's get, Mr. Opolsky, let's get right to the question, you only have five minutes, right to the question that you raised with, as you said, you wanted to fine tune your presentation. It, did Hunter um, uh, speak definitively to the meaning of Section 53? And does Hunter require express language? So I have Hunter in front of me, and I'm on page 449, 450, and the Chief Justice writes, if one wishes to contract out of statutory protections, this must be done by clear and direct language particularly where the parties are two large commercially sophisticated companies. So does that require that understanding of an express agreement, express language that refers precisely to the implied condition or not? Yes, um, Justice Kazir, our, our position would be yes, it does. Um, <laughs> Hunter is quite clear in his uses of clear and direct language um, and there was some discussion before about the difference between agreement and language itself. I think that difference may be explained by SATFA, paragraph 57. Because what SATFA is saying is that while factual matrix is relevant, ultimately the goal of the court is to determine the objective of the parties as contained in the words of the agreement. So language is fundamental to what we think about in contract. And if we take Hunter combined with the language of the act itself, which refers to not just an agreement, but an express agreement, <laughs> it's clear to us that Hunter requires more than simply a regular SATFA analysis. It requires clarity and hence the words of clear and direct. It requires it because, as the uh, respondent noted, this is not a simple question of statutory interpretation. It's the interaction between an agreement and the statute itself. There is a default regime that the statute creates. There's a lot of discussion about fairness today. What is fair? What is the deal? But I think it's important that we take a step back. But the statute and look. also requ uh, uh, permits the uh, removal of a, uh, of a warranty by a course of conduct, which is implied. There's nothing expressed there at all. It can't be expressed. It can't be direct. It can't be, uh, well, maybe it can be clear but it's an implied course of conduct. So how do we interpret express agreement when that's an option as well? Uh, thank you, Justice Martin. I think that's an incredibly important point about Section 53, but it's a disjunctive clause. It provides an ex express agreement or usage, such as the usage would constitute an agreement. So in our submissions, that only buttresses the interpretation of express agreement because it's not an implied term that's created through usage. Ultimately, <laughs> that's a decision of the Ontario legislature to establish in terms of what is the fairness underlying a default regime. And they have decided that you need either an express agreement or a usage that has such clarity um, that it would create an agreement in and of itself. Because all, uh, 
Because ultimately, in creating that default regime, that default regime creates certainty. It tells Ontarians that this is the way that they will interact with each other through the sales of goods. My friends for the appellant said most Canadians will not know about the Sales of Good Act and won't know how to contract in or contract out of it. Perhaps that's true. But then the decision of the Ontario legislature is in that circumstance to apply the default rule and invert it, except if there is an express intention to remove yourself from the default rule. Those are the terms of fairness that apply. Uh, I see that I'm out of time, Chief Justice. All right, thank you very much. Your turn now. My friend at the outset of um, my friend at the outset of his submissions made four points about uh, what the contract provided, and he said his, cli his client Pine Valley had no obligation to test. Respectfully, um, as a prelude to the contract, we have to understand that the tests were up about a month and a half to two months old. They were told to test because everybody, including them, knew that soil composition changes every time you dig into the pile and, and, and add it, superimposed on that, there was some added organics, so they had to, what they call, mix it or batch it. And so it was fundamentally important and they knew it. In fact, their own site superintendent or the only individual negotiating the contract with them, Mr. Soraya, testified and acknowledged it was reasonable and prudent to do so. I recommend that they do so to his own, to, to, to the principal of the company. So to say that there was no obligation to test Respectfully, I would suggest that that ignores a business reality. The business reality between the parties is what they knew what was going to happen if they didn't test because this was this pile that they were uh, had the old test from was almost two months old. And so a party going into a contract has to act reasonably. They can't just close their eyes and say, it's, your, it's on you when we're, you're told that you should be doing this, you should be testing. Um, the second point to your comment is this. Um, the courts have strived in Satva and Ledcor and Cornerbrook to get away from technical interpretations. And that's exactly what my friend wants this court to do. Hang on a technical interpretation by insisting that magic words be inserted into a contract to, a, to allow a party to a, a, a oust liability under the Sale of Goods Act, which is completely inconsistent with the direction of this court, is completely inconsistent with the, the, the approach that this court should take, which is to look at, what, look at the, the true intention of the parties. And if you look at, uh, I think it's Rosenberg, it's at tab, it's in the condensed book of authority, uh, condensed book of the appellant, at tab eight, page 22, of, uh, sorry, page 21 of the decision starting at paragraph 98. The court in Rosenberg says that the, the, the labeling of a term as a condition or a warranty in a written contract is a legal term of art. For the purposes of contractual inter interpretation, such language should be given its technical meaning in law unless there's some, something in the context to displace the presumption that it was intended to carry a tec its technical meaning. And then it goes on to say in paragraph 99, the approach that the use of the, lang uh, the legal term of art in a wording of a contract is not decisive but only presumptive is consistent with the comments in Satva that interpretation of contracts has evolved towards a practical common sense approach not dominated by technical rules of construction. And that's the position that uh, we suggest this court ought to apply and why it should apply not only to tech 
not only to contractual interpretation, but also to the interpretation of the statute, because that's what that it's driven by a contract. Um, the position, if you accept their position, then what that could mean to many contracts is that the intention of the parties is not necessarily met because the magic words don't exist. But if you look at it in a broader context, and if you look at it in the context that I suggest, justice will always be done between the parties because their intentions are met and their intentions are satisfied. And unless uh, there have any further questions, I have no further submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, thank you all for your uh, submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much.